Welcome to the fourth season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I am honored to bring you these compelling conversations. This season's theme is scaffolding. Guests will be sharing all the ways in which we can create scaffolds for students, teachers, and schools that promote agency, equity, and understanding. Of course, we will continue to link these conversations to the strands of the PEBC teaching framework by focusing on community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment. Thank you so much for listening in. Dr. Kimberly Munoz is an advocate for equitable education opportunities for bilingual students in her roles as an educator and researcher. She has served students as a bilingual educator for the past 20 years across the state of Texas. Dr. Munoz earned her doctorate in curriculum and instruction with an emphasis on reading education from Texas A&M Commerce and currently participates in several local and international research teams which explore the development of teacher education programs. Kim, thank you so much for joining me today on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, I can't wait for our discussion. Um, you know, today we're really going to dive into that synergy between advocacy and healing, which I think is such an interesting kind of combination to talk about and to talk about together, especially right now. Mm -hmm. But before we jump in and before we begin, may we hear your story? Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, I, I want to say, I think if someone had told me my 10-year-old Kimberly self, you know, you're going to learn Spanish, you're going to teach elementary bilingual, elementary uh, bilingual students in Texas, I would have laughed at them. I really would have, because I really grew up in a context from kinder all the way through high school, which was monolingual English, um, only Caucasian friends, teachers. And so I really had no exposure to other cultures or linguistic backgrounds other than my own. And so um, as really my story begins in my freshman year of, of high school and in, in Spanish class with Senor Hingston, who was a fantastic Spanish teacher. He's the kind of teacher that every foreign language teacher should emulate um, because he was, he just was so passionate about um, language. And that's really in his classes where my story begins because I learned a love for the language, uh, which extended all the way through high school and allowed me to um, just consider another path. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to college, my freshman year of college, I actually was placed in a grammar class and it was a higher level grammar class. It was a junior level grammar class and everyone had traveled abroad except for me. So I went from being the best Spanish student in high school to the absolute worst <laughs> Spanish student in high school or in college <laughs> and um, really had a kind of a crisis of where, what am I going to do? And so my professor said, you know, Kim, I think you should travel abroad, go to, go to some of the trips that we offer at the university. And so my spring break, my freshman year, I went to Mexico with a group um, to Tijuana, Mexico. And so it was in that trip at that particular um, orphanage that we served at where I really felt an audible calling to serve Hispanic, the Hispanic community with my entire life. Mm -hmm. It was the strangest thing. I've only ever felt the same kind of assuredness and confidence when I met my husband <laughs> for the first <laughs> time. It was like, oh, this is the guy for me. And so the, that same 
sense of understanding and confidence that this is what I was designed and called to do um, happened in that trip. And so when I came back from the trip, I received a letter from my dad, my dad, um, you know, we did, that was before cell phones. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least I didn't have a cell phone at that time. And so I got a letter saying, Hey, we moved to Michigan. Uh, So when you come back from college, you're going to be actually coming home for the summer in Michigan. And so it happened to be, and I say happened to be, because I don't believe in coincidences. I think things happen for a reason. Um, that at the same school where I was doing like a summer school tutoring um, practice with with elementary students happened to be um, housed the migrant education um, program for Michigan. And really what that program was designed for was for students whose families served as migrant workers and I, I felt, I was like, this is, this is what I was designed to do. It was amazing. So from that point on, um, I fell in love with the culture. I felt I had a love for the language and really, um, went back to college my sophomore year, declaring my major as both Spanish and elementary education with an emphasis in bilingual education. And so really my path as an educator, I had all of these moments along the way, which, were mentors, experiences that just happened to happen at the same, at the right moment. Wow. So, I mean, that's such a beautiful story. I mean, you fell in love at first sight. Absolutely. It was one of those strange, weird (laughs) love at first sight. And um, it really, like I said, I had, it opened an entire new world that I did not even knew existed beyond my own, my own background. Um, and then years later, I, I became a bilingual teacher in Dallas mm-hmm. after I graduated from college. And all of those things, you know, when you are in the teacher ed programs, you have this very idealistic view of what teaching is. And so I was ready to go love on my students. And literally the first year of teaching, I was very disillusioned. I walked in and I was like, wow, how is it that I never learned about this in college? I never understood. And I I didn't have my personal experiences were not surrounding poverty, immigration, xenophobia. And so all of the obstacles that my, my students had experienced were also obstacles that I experienced in terms of their educational achievement. Um, and trying to know how to work within um, within those challenges. But in addition, I found this is what actually what changed me from being an educator to an advocate, because not only were they facing all of these obstacles, but they were also they were given additional obstacles, which were lack of access to Spanish language materials, um, inequitable curriculum that just was not relevant to their experiences assessments that were really just translated versions of the English version of the assessment. And so it was in this moment that I said, you know what, I don't know what I have to do. I have to do something to change the situation. And so really that was the beginning of my journey as an advocate. Mm -hmm. When it's interesting, when you think back on those early years of teaching, right, we've all entered our classroom and we were, we were ready to go (laughs) and you arrive and you realize that there are these systems and structures in place and inequities that you maybe didn't even know, like you said, you didn't even know they existed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're, you are right there side by side by those students all day and thinking about their needs and their amazing successes and their assets and, and, and all the places they can go. And so for you, it sounds like those early years, 
you said you trans, you kind of made that kind of transition, if you will, into advocacy. And so when you think about that identity, I mean, you've really kind of shared your journey with us into education, into the bilingual classroom, but then what does your identity as an advocate look like and sound like? So I definitely feel that my identity has evolved definitely from the very beginning, um, 20 years ago when I started my um, first year as a teacher until now. And um, first of all, I will say I was so mad. <laughs> I think that that anger, that holy anger of injustice, like, why is this happening? And that really hasn't changed too much. Like, I'm still angry. It's still <laughs> happening. Situation. It's, I'm still mad. Um, but I think initially, obviously, like, advocates, what we, our mission is to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. And so really my entire life is centered around the concept of what can I do to speak up for the injustices of those who are, you know, don't have that voice. In this case, it's my bilingual students. Um, So at the beginning, I had a very naive understanding of what my role was as an advocate. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, as long as I go to school and get, you know, I finish my master's and then I do my doctorate, I'll have the weapons that I need to defend my students. And so that was my understanding. Like, as long as I just go to school and I just, you know, go through the program that I need to go through, then I'll, I'll have, people will listen to what I have to say Mm. and I'll change the world. Right. That was like my naive kind of uh, understanding of my role. And as I progressed through my coursework, I think I got even more angry. (laughs) I went from being mad to being really mad, like pissed off mad. And so um, it became more of the, I began to have a more of a deeper understanding of the complexity of the issues that we're facing. It wasn't just that my students had a lack of access to Spanish language materials because there wasn't enough money. It was because our educational system doesn't value their first language, doesn't value them. And that's what made me mad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's what made me even more upset is that seeing how actual instructional decisions were actually connected to racism, xenophobia, and all of those things that intentionally exclude our students from having equal access, equitable access to education. And so in my as I got more and more angry. <laughs> yes, I can tell in your voice too, right? But it, it is that, but it is, I mean, it's interesting. I think if we, you know, everyone who's been in the classroom or been in schools mm-hmm. for a little bit of time can see this arc, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way in which your anger and passion grew over time was related to your experiences mm-hmm. and getting to kind of know the inner workings of some of these systems and structures and then realizing what the root cause might be. Yes. And I think my anger was started to shift towards a feeling of, and these are just absolutely, I'm just going to be very raw and honest with you. They were Mm -hmm. feelings of um, depression, despair, some hopelessness. So as, as an advocate, I began to realize that, wow, like questioning even my, my agency as an advocate, what can I do? I'm only one person and, and inside of me as an advocate, I'm like, but I'm one person, that one person counts, you know, like that, that inner, that inner voice of an advocate. And so it's a, it, for me, those emotions, mm-hmm. I now recognize are intentionally, are intentional 
because our system doesn't want you to question, doesn't want you to say, hey, there's another way of doing this. Hey, we need to provide equal access to our students. Our system wants to have advocates burn out. And so we are, as I was kind of going through this, and now I'm at this point where I'm saying, okay, now what? (laughs) So as an advocate, I feel like now my shift is now, it's not only just about my bilingual students, it's an entire problem for our, it's dehumanizing our teachers. Our system of education dehumanizes all students because we don't see our students as human beings. We see our students as dollars. We see our students as numbers. And so as such, because our cultural mindset is such a mindset that's focused on productivity, we, are, we have this very uh, limited understanding of how we've basically put the industrial revolution model onto education. And so every student represents, like I said, a number, a dollar. And as a result, we're trying to be as productive as possible. However, by not attending to the humanity of our students and teachers, we're actually being counterproductive. Hmm. Same we're being about counter- that. Yeah. Yeah. Because look at where we, are, where we are right now in terms of our system. We have teachers who are leaving the profession left and right because they've been in the grind and hustle of, okay, I'm here. I'm doing what I need to do because they're, the system's telling me that, hey, we need to get our standardized test scores up, even though those scores are completely based on, they're not relevant in terms of what our students really need. Mm-hmm. And so there, we have educators who have been in this grind and hustle mode for so long. And now through a pandemic, which our teachers really burnt out mm-hmm. and are still, we have not, we have not as a profession actually received any healing regarding that trauma. Mm-hmm. We've been just expected to just kind of keep on fighting, keep on fighting, keep on fighting. And so as a result, we have teachers that are leaving our field because they're so tired of fighting every single day. So Kim, I have a, a question for you. When we think about you know, the story that you shared with us in terms of being an advocate for your students, Mm-hmm. and making your way through higher education and collecting as many tools and strategies and weapons that you could to fight for the kids, you realized at a point that there was a bigger system than you. Mm-hmm. And that caused you to have that feeling of overwhelm and discouragement and, and depression. I, I'm inferring from what you just shared is that not only did you experience that as an individual in your story, but perhaps education as a field is experiencing that right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would also say that as advocates, if we have to be completely honest, we cannot be effective as advocates if we do not heal ourselves. We have to, as advocates, recognize, and this is where, and let me tell you how I figured this out, because it took me it, to connect the dots between advocacy and healing was something that I didn't necessarily connect right away. Okay. It, it started off really with my dissertation when I went into um, bilingual classrooms and I was looking at 
um, reading comprehension, which is a typical and generic problem that most students have, especially for bilingual learners. Um, so I was considering what teachers can do to create contexts which are effective um, to develop their students' reading comprehension in English and Spanish, as well as their motivation to read in English and Spanish. So as I was talking with the bilingual teachers, a little bit about their experiences with learning language, um, education, and things of that nature, I recognized that this trauma that they had experienced, they, a lot of them had told stories of how they were made fun of or bullied for whenever they had, um, when they were in school mm. for their accent in English. And so in order to kind of over, overcompensate for that, they decided that in their current classroom, they would only do English um, language instruction, which is against the model that we've implemented in, in different districts for bilingual education. And so it was kind of an aha moment for me because I recognized, wow, this is a trauma that keeps on replicating based on the trauma that they have experienced in, in, in language. But it's also, when speaking to their students, they would say things like, well, my, I don't think Spanish is that important because, um, you know, my teacher, she doesn't read to us and, or he doesn't read to us in, in Spanish. And so they started to kind of now actually integrate that trauma into their own understanding of what was valuable. Um, and then where it came, where I started to personalize it as an advocate was when I started to realize, wow, like here, what messages have been sent to me about my role as an educator? And some of those messages include, you're only as valuable as your test scores. Mm -hmm. You're only as valuable if you stay after school and tutor your kids for a couple of hours for free every day, or you go to Saturdays and, you know, do Saturday school tutoring. If you are, have this very, if you say, um, things like, oh man, I'm so busy and I'm so like stressed out. It's almost glorified in right. our role as educators. And if you say, no, I feel good. I feel great. You're looked at as, as crazy. So I, I kind of realized pretty, you know, like within the last, I would say year uh -huh. that in order for me to be an effective advocate, I have to heal the trauma that I've experienced as an educator by recognizing those narratives, those messages that have been sent to me as a teacher were actually intentional to burn me out and to not do the work of questioning the system. So for me, I think it's more than just allowing, um, saying, okay, what can we do to change this problem? It's also, what can I do to heal in order to have the energy <laughs> to even conceive of something different? Yeah. So that's really interesting because you have just kind of jumped into that sea of social, emotional wellness and learning and healing from trauma, but you've paired it with the work of advocacy and education. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like there's a synergy between these two. Absolutely. You can't, you can't be as impactful of an advocate if you are suffering the the impact of trauma, or if you haven't had that time to heal yourself. So in the work that you're doing with your research and working with pre-service teachers, as well as teachers in classrooms, as well as your own work as an advocate, mm -hmm. what are some things that our listeners might want to consider if they're making a lot of connections with your story and, and feeling a lot of these of, of similar feelings? 
Mm. So I will say, first of all, um, there are a few books that I'm going to recommend throughout this uh, time together. One that had been, has been really impactful for me is The Four Pivots by Dr. Sean Ginwright. And he talks about the role of advocates as you're either a firefighter, an architect, or a builder. Mm. And so firefighters are basically, you know, you're addressing in the moment those different actions that are happening. And it might be a conversation that you have with your administrator. You're making a decision about the language of instruction or an assessment. Um, so those are those little things that are happen that pop up. But ultimately, we have to kind of also take the role of architect. Mm. And I think, as I mentioned before, if you are burnt out, which I think a lot of our educators are at this moment, a lot of our advocates are, um, it's hard for you to be an architect. In other words, it's hard for you to consider something that's beyond what our current system is. You can't imagine something new or different possibilities if you're burnt out. Mm. And so where I am, and this is where uh, what we're doing in terms of our pre-service teacher uh, education program. Um, first, we're actually doing a reflection with our students. And this is important, not just it's something important for me, but it's also important for our pre-service teachers because they have to do, we have to do the internal work of being critically conscious about what are the messages that our system is trying to tell us about our value and worth as educators and advocates in education. And so for some of those teachers, what we're doing, we're asking them to consider their race. We have students that have been you know, discriminated against based on their race, their language, their immigration status. So all of these just parts of their identity of who they are as individuals um, are, it's necessary that they consider what has been told to me, how I, have I felt about those things? And the reason why it's so important is because we don't want that trauma to be replicated, similar to what was going on in the bilingual classrooms that I had um, I had done my research in. So we don't want our students to have such a trauma that they're, they're unaware and unconscious of their trauma, and so they replicate it in their classroom. Um, so that's really, I would say, is the critical consciousness of healing is that first part of recognizing there's something that needs to be healed inside of me. Um, and then I would then say, second of all, would be to really consider our role as advocates. So like I said beforehand, I think previously, I was just so mad <laughs> and so angry, and I still am. But I don't think that it's a sustainable decision to be so angry and allow that anger to be the fuel of our advocacy only. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I mean by that is that we cannot sacrifice our entire self in order to be martyrs for our students. And I would say in, in the book, that is um, another amazing book that you have to read, um, The Lightmakers Manifesto with Walrend. She talks about how we have to use our anger could be like a spark. It gets us started with our advocacy work, but it can't be our fuel. Our mm. fuel has to be our joy. The things that we, the possibilities and dreams that we have, the goals for our personal lives, we have to consider how are we using joy to fuel our work? 
Um, and so the different projects that we're working on right now, I'm involved in a project that is brings me so much joy. <laughs> and I, it's awesome because it has, it, 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 whenever you do something that brings you joy, it, you can, you can spend hours doing it. It, and you just, right. you're, in a flow, you're in a flow state, you know, you can't like time just kind of goes by and you're like, Oh man, I look at all the things I did with this, this moment. So really considering what can we do to spark joy in our lives as advocates. And that can also, and most importantly, mean we need to take care of ourselves by really looking at our personal lives and saying, what am I doing to kind of, um, allow myself to rest? I know it's so funny in, um, in the book, the four pivots, um, Dr. Jen Wright talks about how rest can be like taking a nap is actually an act of resistance because the system wants us to be tired. They, the system wants us to not, you know, have the energy to fight it, Mm -hmm. but taking a nap is part of that recognition. Like, you know, I need to fuel myself with physical rest in order for me to do the work. And so it's not, it, those are the things that we need to do as advocates, looking at boundaries. Mm-hmm. And when I mean boundaries, I mean, just say no to all the extra stuff that they want you to do. And we know that as, as educators, there's so many oh, can you do this club after school? Can you do, you know, sponsor this thing or that? And, you know, we have to put those boundaries on our time because Mm -hmm. if not it, we can't, it's like a cup, right? The cup. And I, um, I don't remember where where I heard this metaphor, but basically everything in the cup is for you. Everything that flows out of the cup is for others. And so if you're constantly depleting your cup, you know, and that's what we do as educators. We sacrifice, sacrifice, but we can't give what we don't have. We have to fill our cup with joy, with rest. And those boundaries are are part of the cup. Mm. That's a really helpful metaphor. And I know that we, we hear that mantra a lot and see it a lot, but when you, when you put it in context, the way that you just did, um, it's, it's really, really helpful. I mean, thinking about that, that anger is the spark, not the fuel, that actually the fuel is joy. Yeah. That it's finding that, that, that thing or that action or that, that part of our work that makes us so happy. And at the same time, it's also probably joy that happens outside of the schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. And what are the ways in which we can feed our own selves? And then in order to do that, you have to have those boundaries. Absolutely. And let me, let's just be honest. A lot of the reason why we stay in education, our joy is our students. Absolutely. Those relationships is the reason why we stay in education. And so I think as educators, we have to be a little, a little more cautious about making sure that we take care of ourselves, but not looking at it as a selfish act. It's actually the most unselfish thing you can do because it means if, if I take care of myself, that means that I can be an even more effective advocate and even more effective educator, a more effective mom, sister, whatever, whatever relationship you have that that's actually unselfish. Mm -hmm. So this is really, really helpful. And I mean, I just, 
love what you just shared with us. You, you really can't give what you don't have. And with that in mind, um, as educators are engaging in this internal work and taking lots of notes in their journals right now and thinking about, okay, where is that, where is that spark? What has me really ticked off and what gives me great happiness and how can I, you know, nourish my body and rest? Um, and what is my year going to look like? A lot mm. of that work feels internal. Like mm. you have to have some discipline. You've got to make a plan and really be mindful of that um, in order to do that healing. And like you said, to sustain ourselves, to be advocates for our students. Do you have any ideas or suggestions or things you'd like to share with us about external facing actions that we might take? Hmm. Yeah. Um, taking a deep sigh. <laughs> <laughs> I know you already gave us a lot. <laughs> I'm taking a deep sigh because these are the things that I'm, you know, I'm in the messy middle of my healing as well. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of times people want to know like, oh, let's see the before and after shot of whatever change you've made in your life. And so I'm really in the messiness of this, this question. Um, so externally, personally, uh, I would say to find like-minded colleagues who mm -hmm. believe in the same philosophy, you know, find your tribe, your mm -hmm. comadres in Spanish. It's uh, your group of chicks, you know, that have that same mentality to keep you accountable um, to that um, understanding of, of self-care and just enough healing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing because by yourself, it is very isolating to just say, well, I'm, I'm the only one that's dealing with this feeling of burnt out or feeling of fighting the system. But in actuality, there are so many people out there who are doing the work and you're one of them. Yeah. Um, and then I would say also to allowing, you know, once you do that reflection of yourself, your own traumas that you've experienced over language, um, you know, your identity, your, you know, messages that have been sent to you about your value as an educator, share it with your tribe, the people that you feel comfortable with, and also allow your students to share their experiences, their personal narratives regarding their personal um, stories of, of trauma. And what I mean by trauma is their identities, how they have um, maybe some areas that they're struggling with. I know with, uh, with the emergence of social and emotional learning, we've integrated a lot of wonderful practices, mindfulness moments, breathing, and that's part of, of what this is about, but also part of it is the concept of where, in what area are our students actually struggling with mm. that they need to maybe write out, talk about, um, that could be part of a circle that's a healing circle in your classroom. Um, in our ed, in our teacher ed program, we're doing that same exact thing. We're allowing our students to share their testimonios, we call in Spanish, which is just a practice of sharing their personal narratives about their identity. And then I also would like to encourage the idea that advocacy doesn't always happen in these big sweeping, <laughs> big sweeping um, changes. Like I used to think, I used to think, oh, with my sword, I'm going to, you know, slay the dragon. <laughs> it's actually really and truly small actions of advocacy that make ripple effects. Um, and so it could be you're in an ARD meeting, you're in a meeting um, and you have to speak up about the language of assessment. 
that's advocating for your students. So those little moments, you know, don't discount them because they're actually really powerful moments that can change the lives of your students. And then actually it is part of your self-efficacy as an uh, an advocate as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, I think at the end of the day, just creating empathy for yourself first and foremost you know, we are flawed individuals. We make mistakes. You know, the past we've always made, you know, we've, we can look back and say, Oh, I wish I could have done this differently. Um, you know, give yourself some grace and, and recognize like, okay, this is where I am. And how can I show up for myself in a different way? Um, so that I can have a sustainable and joyful career in education. And then how can I extend that same empathy for my students, because you have to first extend it to yourself before mm-hmm. you can extend it to your students. Wow, that's that's really powerful. And I think, you know, when you mentioned we can, advocacy doesn't have to come in those large swooping actions. Like you mentioned, like all the small things really do make an impact. Mm-hmm. And by doing this work of healing and is taking stock of our own trauma and thinking about the ways in which that might play out in our own classrooms, or our schools, or our systems, that can lead to that impact that you want to have as an, as an advocate for kids. Absolutely. So you have provided us with a ton of information to think about. I have been taking notes during our conversation. I can't wait to listen to the recording. So again, Yay, like, grab some more. <laughs> um, and, and not only information though, but also a lot of inspiration. Mm. Um, Kim, you are so joyful to talk to. You're so passionate. I love the way that you are so honest and shared with us the anger and then the seriousness and then also the joy and just the humanity of this mm-hmm. work of, of serving students. Um, But as we wrap up, I ask all of our guests, um, do you have a call to action? Any last words you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yes. I, first of all, I want to say you're not alone. You're not alone. I'm, I'm getting, I'm kind of getting emotional about this because I've definitely felt that way. Advocacy can be a lonely, it can, you, you might feel like you're the only troublemaker at your school. You might feel like the only person that's, that's doing something, but you're not alone. We are in this together. There's so many people in this field that in their own little way, in their own corner of the, of the country, of the world are little by little doing something to to shape, um, to shape what we're, our whole goal is, which is to actually show love and serve our students in an effective way. And I would say also too, please, please take care of yourself. No one can do that, but, but you, you have to rest, you have to take care of yourself. And then finally, I would say, you know what, go ahead and be a chingon or chingona, which is just like a really nice, uh, kind of controversial term in Spanish, just be a badass, you know, just, you know, and, and maybe one day you're a badass and you're like, you know what? I woke up like this. And then one day you're like, you know what? Today I'm not feeling that way. And it's okay. <laughs> you don't have to always be on a, a high alert all the time. Some days it's just like, I woke up today and I'm just trying to do the best I can, but keep on going forward. Keep on, you know, pushing forward and keep speaking up for our students and keep taking care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.